I at least did them. Sometimes I got fired within six months or sometimes I kind of flunked at them, but they always led to something that did tap my talent in a certain way. And then in this phase of my business or my career, having a business and writing emails that are the engine of the business, like writing stories in these emails to a list of people who then buy things, that is to me that 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 is the pinnacle of tapping my talent and getting paid to be me. You're listening to the No BS Agency podcast. We talk strategies that can take your one to two person branding agency from $5,000 to $30,000 per month without hiring employees or working your ass off. All you have to do is cut the BS. I am Pia Silva. I am so excited to introduce my guest today, Laura Belgray. Laura is the founder of Talking Shrimp, co-creator of The Copy Cure, and author of Tough Titties on living your best life when you're the effing worst. So good. An award-winning copywriting expert, she helps entrepreneurs find the perfect words to express and sell what they do in a way that gets them paid to be themselves. Through her work with hundreds of clients, including online biggies like Marie Forleo and Amy Porterfield, and Laura, you're that too, you know. <laughs> she She's seen firsthand that putting you into your copy and all through your business is pure magic for getting people to love you up, share your ideas, and happily click your buy button. Yes. In addition to online types, Laura's list of clients and credits include NBC, Bravo, HBO, TBS, Fandango, so many more. If you watch TV and don't skip the commercials, you've probably seen her on air. Tough Titties, her first book published via Hatchet, is available now, and it's the reason you're here. So, Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Pia. It is a delight. Thank you. I thought we should start with the elephant in the room. <laughs> for anyone who knows you and has been following you, I feel like it's safe to say that we all think you're the fucking best. So uh, <laughs> if I may, fangirl for a second, I love your writing so much. Whenever I need to write emails, I go search your name in my inbox and I just kind of read through some of your stuff because it inspires me. It kind of gets me out of that first level writing. Over the years, I bought many of your little courses and PDFs, all of them incredibly valuable. Uh, one of them in particular, I don't know if you're still selling this. It was a like a $97 PDF that was just loaded with examples. It was gold. Yeah. It was 60 worth minute so makeovers. much. Yes, 60-minute 60 60 minute makeovers. It is so still for good. sale, still available. Well, I, it is gold. Um, so you're awesome. What gives? <laughs> tell, us, <laughs> tell us all what makes you the effing worst. <laughs> Thank you. I, I One reason you might think I'm the best is because, and thank you for that, is because I am real about being the effing worst. <laughs> and I think that gives hope to people who do not feel like they have their shit together, who feel like they're a bit of a hot mess, who find themselves like I do, often saying, oh, God, I'm so sorry, I'm the worst. And so it's not about being a bad person. Although at times I've made some maybe ill-conceived choices. Um, <laughs> like ditching a friend to hang out with a celebrity or dating a married man uh, for two and a half years who 
said he wasn't married, but it was pretty clear that he was and that kind of thing. But also like running late all the time. Still to this day, I try so hard to get on time to so much as a Zoom call and often don't make it. And (laughs) being late, being unsuited for the straight and narrow path, the up and up and up corporate rise. I, I mean, I was unsuited for even, you know, a week in the corporate world. I couldn't make it to work by t- nine, much less even 10 a.m., which is <laughs> when work was supposed to start. And in fact, at my Barnes and Noble event that I did for the launch of Tough Titties, a, an ex, a former coworker of mine was there and she was one of the people who raised their hand to ask a question. And she said, I want to know where you found the discipline to write a book. Because <laughs> when we worked together, you were always strolling in at noon, at one, and we would all say, I think she said 11. I was like, mm, not, not likely, um, not quite. maybe for special occasions. She was like, so you know, all of us would say, oh, yeah, must be nice to be Laura. Um, how do we get to be <laughs> Laura? I think also they would say, God damn her. Like, how do, Why does she get to do that? And so those are some of the many ways in which I think I am kind of the worst. It's low key the worst. Low so key the worst. Low key, low key doesn't really work as a in a subtitle. It uh-huh. softens it too much. You want to <laughs> right. say effing. But yeah, it's low key the worst. I think we can all relate to the feeling of anytime you're not doing something that feels like the way you're supposed to do it. Well, yeah. well I'm the worst, right? right? I'm the worst because I didn't call you back. Fast yes, enough. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't call you back. I didn't right. do my paperwork. I have to pay a late fee on this bill, not because I couldn't afford to pay it, but because I just forgot to or just put off paying it and kept the paperwork on my desk with a coffee cup on top of it. Mm-hmm. That kind of being the worst. Are you ADD? Is that too personal? My husband's ADD. Sounds like <laughs> No, it's not too personal at all. It's like after after reading my book, many people have suggested to me, you might have ADHD. It sounds like you have ADHD. And I'm down for that diagnosis. I just haven't gotten it together to like actually go to be evaluated, though I have taken several online quizzes. Uh-huh. And None of them are conclusive. I never, nor any personality tests I ever take. I'm always right in the middle. And I was like, damn it, I'm not even an introvert. (laughs) So according to online quizzes, I'm not ADHD, but I think there could be, and maybe they're not right. Maybe those are not, you know, doctor endorsed. Well, my most creative friends are all have these qualities. So uh-huh. I can see that because you're a writer, right? There's something about the creative brain, whether yeah. you are or not. Um, well, your book is full of effing worst stories. Um, <laughs> I love that you quote your husband, Stephen, calling it the loser sex in the city. Yeah, he said that's so good. Definitely share some cringy stories in there. I'm actually super curious where you may or may not have drawn the line. Like, were there mm-hmm. some stories where you were like, maybe I'm not going to tell that. Or was it like, no, I'm going to go for it. (laughs) You know, uh, I pretty much went for it. There were a few stories that were maybe too dark to publish and Mm -hmm. like extensions of my time with the married salsa instructor uh, instructor. There were many stories that came out of that and Mm -hmm. it was just like, nope, too dark. Can't. Mm -hmm. And Trying to think of there, 
No, most of the things I cut, I cut not because they were too personal, mm-hmm. but because they just didn't fit thematically. And I had to find somewhere to cut because mm-hmm. I was well over my word count, which was supposed to be 75,000 words. And I had like, you know, 100,000. And so I had to right. find some chunks to leave out. So but I didn't really draw the line at too personal. There are things that I don't share from my current life, current private mm-hmm. life. But anything from my past, I kind of feel like that's a different person. That's a character. Right. It's not right. me. So right. I feel free to share those things. I love it. No, it definitely feels like you're going into the vault and pulling out this, yeah. the war stories, um, <laughs> which is very relatable. Um, you published with Hatchet. Super fancy. Congrats on that. Thank you. Um, I'm curious how much oversight they had. Like you have such a strong voice. And I was, as I was reading it, I was wondering if there was any sort of censorship or if you ever felt like they were trying to water you down. Did they have anything to say about it or were they just like, do you, Laura? That's what we hired you for. Uh-huh. That's what we gave you the book deal for. Yeah. No, no one ever tried to tone it down. My editor did have a lot to say about the first pile of stuff I handed her. And it was a real rookie mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, she had asked for a few sample chapters and I handed her what I didn't real I didn't do a word count, but mm-hmm. what I realized later was 85,000 words as in 10,000 over what the final book was uh-huh. supposed to be. And she went through it and it was just not ready for prime time. And so she had a lot to say about it. I kept saying, it's not the manuscript. She kept calling it the manuscript. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just sample chapters, but I did need to hear what she had to say about it, which was, the voice is all over the place. I don't know what the theme is here. What do you want the theme to be? What is the point of view here? What is the point to this story and that story? What are you trying to say? Mm-hmm. And I was really offended by that feedback at first. Mm-hmm. And she said, where is the voice? And I was like, I am voice, yeah, girl, right. <laughs> please. But then later I saw that, yeah, they. I think they were plenty voicey, but she, what she was trying to say was, what is the point? Why are you telling this story? You have to tell us why you're telling this story. So that is where they intervened. But in no way did they say, um, you've got to, like, you can't go this far. You can't go there. You can't be this revealing. They wanted it all. They were, they were happy with that. Yeah. When you read it, it feels like a collection of essays about your life, but it feels kind of like it effortlessly builds on itself. So... Nailed Thank it. you. Thank you. <laughs> it, it feels, I, I'm saying it because it feels effortless. Like the theme is there, but it's not, you're not being banged no. over the head with it. It's just building through the yes, stories. Right. Which is yeah. what I was Seems hoping hard for. Yeah. <laughs> because, because I did not want to make this at, like the book I'm expected to write in mm-hmm. my industry, our industry, the, the online space right. is an how expert to. book, a how to something <laughs> right. with bullet points, something with, uh, you know, that ends each chapter with your next steps. Here's mm-hmm. what to do next. Um, you know, journal prompt. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm not giving any spoon fed takeaways or journal prompts. That's not, this is not that kind of book. I was inspired by David Sedaris is writing and mm-hmm. Tina Fey's. And like, that was the kind of book I wanted to write that did not feel like a how to, nobody was picking it up because it was going to teach them something. They just wanted to be entertained and read it for pleasure. Yeah, which was such an interesting choice. And it's really you expressing the thing that you're teaching instead of using it as a 
Like it, it does feel like it will be a stepping stone for your business, even though it's not as straightforward. Like was the decision just because like, well, listen, this is what I want to write. I don't really mm-hmm. feel like writing the other thing. It's kind yeah. of how your, your marketing is too, right? You're, yes. So I don't I guess feel like sense. it. So I'm not, um, <laughs> that's exactly my, you're the worst, my, Laura. <laughs> yes. I'm the worst. That is exactly my marketing style. And the hope is as is with anything I write and put out there in my, like my newsletter, my captions on social, et cetera, that people will connect with me mm. through the book, that they will respond to the writing. It'll resonate with them. They'll say, oh, I want more of Laura. I want more of this author, more of this narrator, the person in this book. I connect with them and then they'll come investigate my site and come into my world, my honey trap. And, Mm -hmm. um, and become part of it. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. One thing I love about your writing is I feel like you just pull the best references in your stories. It's, it's those little details often a bit obscure, but when you get them, you feel so in the know. It reminded me a little bit of Chuck Klosterman. I don't know if you're familiar. Mm. Like most of his references go over my head, but when I get them, I'm <laughs> I right. feel very cool. <laughs> it feels very personal to me. And I ha- had that experience over and over again in your book. It's also something I'm always trying to explain and teach to my students about their writing yeah. um, as kind of a way to bring it to life and connect. And then I sometimes I wonder if my references, I'm going to ask you for a little coaching right here. Sometimes I wonder if my references are maybe so obscure that I'm going to lose people. Like, for example, like literally anytime anyone says something mean in my head, I'm like, oh, that's way harsh, Ty. <laughs> and I want, and to me, that's a very obvious reference for anyone who grew up with Clueless, uh-huh. but it probably wouldn't even register with someone who didn't. And so I was just curious. How do you decide when something is too obscure or you don't care or you're not even thinking about this? Yeah, I would say like in an email, mm-hmm. I might use something like that. That's way too harsh tie. Or mm-hmm. I, I used to have at the bottom, I don't think I still do anymore because it's so dated, but I used to have uh, a thing around the unsubscribe, like, you know, you signed up for this, that, but you can say by Felicia anytime you want. And I remember like, that unsubscribe, right? <laughs> yeah. And like, that's it in the tiny print at the bottom. And I don't mind if I lose if people are like, what's by Felicia, who's Felicia, um, and don't know that it's from Fridays. But I, I think that in a book in something that's going out to a wider audience, you need to explain some of the references. Like you don't have to explain, say, the name of the supermarket. And I I feel like brand names, names of stores, that kind of thing gives it grip, gives it concrete detail that doesn't Mm. lose anyone. It just makes it feel more realistic. Mm. So if you say at the, you know, I went to A&P and bought a a raw chicken, people will know A&P is a grocery store. And mm-hmm. they'll, or they'll know it's a supermarket, or you might say A&P supermarket. But using a, an expression from a movie that not everyone knows, that's not super obvious, mm-hmm. can lose them a little bit. It does not necessarily make it more specific and therefore more universal, which is what the details do. Like them, yeah. so there, there is a saying. I don't know who said it first, but it is 
true um, that the more specific you make something, the more universal it becomes. So you don't have to worry about, oh, this is too specific, uh, this world that I'm showing. That I'm, that I'm creating. The more specific it is, the more people will relate to it, even though it's not their experience. Mm. Especially maybe, I mean, this is my experience, like I said, with Chuck Klosterman's references that are so specific to like music world that I don't know anything about, mm -hmm. but you get what they're saying. So yes. sometimes you don't get the reference, but you know what the reference is supposed to imply. And so yes. you're like, I kind of get the reference. <laughs> exactly. If you mm -hmm. know what it's supposed to imply, mm -hmm. then then you're good. If people have no idea, if it feels like a foreign language, that's when you lose people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, taking, taking note. Uh, so you talk about a lot of people in this book and you talk about them with their names. Like you started the book with this chapter about some girl in high school who made your life hell. And now you're not so secretly happy that she's so basic and lame. And basically you've had all the success and it was <laughs> so real and cringy and all the things you're not supposed to say, but we all think <laughs> to some degree. I was a little disappointed at the end of the chapter when you said you changed her name, probably mm -hmm. a good thing. Yes. <laughs> um, I was curious if these stories are specific enough that the people you're referencing or people you grew up with, like, absolutely know who you're talking about? Well, uh, I have heard that there are discussion threads from my old school I about bet. who the person is. To people in my grade, I think uh -huh. it's pretty obvious. Uh -huh. I did change a few details per legal, like that. So there's really? a legal person at Hachette who I had to talk to several times who was like, okay, listen, this person that you're describing in that chapter, who's called Deb Fishbone, it's the chapter is <laughs> called Deb Fishbone Likes This. And it's about how one I, I hate friended her hate followed her on social media. All I would see of, of her was Deb Fishbone likes this above major retailers. So he said, well, first of all, I've looked her up the real one, the real person. And she's from a very litigious family, she and her father have sued each other. And uh -huh. so I would be very careful about her. And so I changed certain details about her uh, identifying details, like what she does for a living. It's similar, yeah. but it's not the same. Right. And so she can't say, you've made it absolutely obvious this is me. And it defamed me, it, especially because I have the word bullying in there. Mm. Um, right? right. So, yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's such a relatable, like those deep things that most people don't want to think about or admit, but we've all hate follow people. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'd be lying if you didn't hate follow people. I was just fascinating to like read that and be like, Oh man, I would be, I would be terrified to write this in the public. Yeah. yeah that one, it did make me nervous. Like did I it? am, I am actually nervous about something that doesn't affect me at all, which is the idea of her reading it. And knowing it's her and hating on me or, I don't right. know, talk, chatting with other people I went to school with who weren't very nice to me then either. Right. Um, that doesn't affect me. It, I, it doesn't matter. But mm -hmm. it still made me cringe a little bit like, oh, I don't want her to do that. But I, I felt like it was such a relatable story that totally. uh, that I owed it to the people. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted it in my book and I wanted to write about it. So... Yeah, it does make me a little nervous. And there are people who I never expected to be aware of the book even, or much less read it, who have from your uh, past, from my past, who are featured in it, 
Oh, Not this in- stuff gets around, Laura. I think everybody's like, have you seen Laura's book? Yeah. And they're in there, like, not in terrible ways, but still in ways sure. where I'm like, I don't really want them to <laughs> to know it's them. I hope they don't. They've so far identified themselves. I feel like in this day and age with social media and just yeah. the fact that we see people more, so even if you don't ever talk to them, you, you see them, so they're more top of mind. I feel like anybody mentioned in this book, it's going to get to them. Or even just partially. I mean, every book, you know, that people from my high school, I'm like, I'm aware of it because it's exciting. It's yeah, I know the person, right? Which, which kind of brings me to there's so many gems in this book. Um, The star fuckers chapter. Mm -hmm. I had a a similar experience in the 90s with Polly Shore, who wanted to (laughs) shop with me and my friends down Broadway, even though we were 16 and he and his friends were happy to like shop with us, but we were happy to oblige because, you know, fame. It was so cool and also creepy. It was creepy at the time, but yeah. also right. Oh. But also thrilling. And you hit all the notes on that feeling. Um, will you tell us a little bit about that story? And I'm curious if that feeling has changed at all now that you've achieved a certain level of fame. <laughs> Yeah, so my friends, my two friends, Vic and Stephanie, their their real names are used in the book with permission. Um, we were on a trip together and having brunch in this little cafe. And uh, Vic, who was in film school, was like, oh, my God, don't look now. But that's right over there at that table is Martin Scorsese. And it's not Martin Scorsese. That's the name that I use in the book, but we'll mm-hmm. pretend that it is. And she's like, I just wrote a, I just wrote a paper on him and his films in film school. I love him so much. He's the best. And we're like, go over there, go say something. She's like, okay, I'm going to. And then she's like, oh, shoot, he's, you know, giving his order. Oh, shoot, he's deep in conversation. No, I can't do it now. They're just, they just brought their food. And she was doing that the whole meal until he was gone. He just disappeared when she was finally ready. And so we, she was like, uh, it just goes to show when you have an opportunity, you have to go for it. And then we left the restaurant and he was sitting there on a park bench right across from the restaurant. And we're like, okay, now's your shot. So she went over and she was like, hi, Mr. Scorsese. I'm so sorry. I was staring at you all through the meal. Um, and he was like, oh, well, I'm, I was staring at you, all three of you, and wondering if you were sisters. And then he offered to take us on a tour of his office that was nearby and took us, like, we walked through the neighborhood with him. Everyone was like, buongiorno, Senor Scorsese. And um, you know, there was like celebrities so like, yoo-hoo, Marty. And, uh, we had this thrilling day with him, which was kind of weird because he was an older guy and uh, with uh, some old fashioned opinions. And we were kind of like, why are we so enchanted by him? But he was so powerful. And so we spent the whole day with him, blew off uh, a date that we were supposed to have at a friend's parents. They had like put out, it turns out, like a cheese board and wine and drinks for us and everything. We didn't have cell phones then. So I didn't know how to reach them. Uh-huh. And um, so, you know, blew them off to be in the company of this director who we didn't think we'd ever see again, but he took our contact info. And then... Uh, a month or so later, I get a call like midnight from this crackling phone, which was a car phone. And it's like, Laura, like, yes, like, it's me, Marty, I'm in New York. Would you would you three like to have dinner with me? I was like, now? 
it's a little late. I was in bed on the mm-hmm. Upper West Side, in my childhood bedroom on the Upper West Side. Uh, but he said, well, then how about Wednesday? And he took us to dinner. And it was like, we couldn't believe that he got in touch with us. And he took us to dinner at Raul's, with, which is this institution in New York. We were like, yeah, we went to a fashion <laughs> yeah. week party with him, which was awkward because we kind of felt like we were babysitting our uncle like brought uh-huh. our uncle to a mosh pit. Um, and then, and then B bar, it was Bowery bar back then, like all the, hit all the hot spots with him. And then he managed to get us back to his hotel room, his hotel apartment at the Carlisle. He kept promising, like, you know, I have spectra vision back at the Carlisle. I have over 200 channels, cable channels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no, no. <laughs> um, but he managed to get us back there. And my friends were both, very interested in uh, possible possibilities that might come out of the connection. Mm-hmm. My friend Stephanie was an actress at the time and thought maybe who knows might cast her in a role. Victoria film school, uh, f- film school student me. I was just starting to work in TV promos and I was writing countdown scripts for VH one, like top 20 countdowns. And so I didn't really need his help with that, but I thought he might see something in me like, discover me say Mm. you know what the world needs is for you to do this and I thought he would just tell me what to do with my life that would channel like tap my talent channel my greatness and make me a wonderkind and so we put up with him for an, an awkward evening of cuddling on a bed and him saying, I need a girl to hug. We kept taking oh my turns. The that three part really yeah. creeped me out. <laughs> it was so creepy. <laughs> he blew in my ear. We kept taking turns not being on the bed with him. Like, I got to uh-huh. go to the bathroom. And he'd be, he'd say, I need a girl to hug. Like he wanted a girl on each side of him. Yeah. And we crept out of the apartment. But it was you know, the whole time it was like, we're with a celebrity. We cannot give up this chance to be with this celebrity, even though it was creepy. He was way too old for us to be hanging out with and cuddling on the bed. And, um, so yeah, that's that (laughs) in a long nutshell. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's just goes to show. I mean, just, I could relate to this feeling, especially are you, you're in your twenties during that, or you're even yes. younger. No, I was 20, 25. You're 25. Yeah. Like this feeling in your twenties where there's, it's like, there's power and opportunity around you, but you don't quite have any of it, yes. <laughs> but you want it. it. You want, I, you want someone to confer that stardom and power on you. And we, th- I think at any age, we can feel like being around a celebrity or being liked by a celebrity makes us special and mm. gives us this sort of, I don't know, sparkle. Um, right. Yeah. With like their I'm magic wand. Osmosis special. Mm-hmm. That actually reminds me of uh, one of my favorite chapters in your book. Um, do you mind if I read it? No. It's too long. This is the chapter about you doing this, this gig job. You're like not trying too hard to build your career. You're just hoping it'll kind of happen. You end up with doing this short-term gig with this woman, Lisa. Um, And and here it is. I'm going to read this part to you. Um, Lisa saw promise in my little nuggets. When my father came to meet me for lunch, she told him, we love Laura here. And then the sentence that spoke right to my soul, we've got to find a way to tap her talent. That right there. That's what I wanted, what I'd been waiting for. For someone or something to come along and tap my talent. <laughs> I 
I laughed out loud when I read this the first time <laughs> and immediately called my husband in and said, I have to read this to you. And we, uh, there is something so poignant about, about that phrase, mm-hmm. about this section. I feel like we all have that feeling, especially in kind of the early twenties. Um, it's like, we're so smart. We're so special, but like the jobs open to us are kind of shit. And like, I hope somebody can see how important and valuable and like full of light I am. It also made me laugh out loud because it reminded me of like all my like little cousins and stuff, like all these <laughs> younger people around uh-huh. me. I'm like, they're all just waiting for their talent to be tapped. What would you say? Because you're talking about a story um, from a little while ago. What would you say to people who are feeling like that right now? Do you feel like your talent ended up getting tapped or did you have to tap it yourself or, or what? Yeah, I do. I think I had to tap it myself. I've always waited for somebody to pinpoint right up to the writing of this book, through the writing of this book. Like, tell me what's great about this. Tell me what you're getting from it. Um, help me pull it out, like help me describe it. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's best about it. And I've always mm. uh, kind of done that with my own self. Like I've hired people to, when I got into the online world, there were people you could, you know, get a coaching session with, and there still are, who I thought maybe they'll tell me what's special about me and what, how I can channel it, how I can tap it. But all along the way, anytime I have tapped into it and channeled it into something worthwhile and something that gets that pays, it's been because I spotted the opportunity, I spotted something I wanted to do, and I did it. So the TV job I get in a following chapter, where, uh, next level dream job in Top Titties, when I discover promo writing, I mean, that came out of a conversation, like I had lunch with somebody I had worked with at Spy, where my talent wasn't completely tapped. Spy was the magazine I worked at Mm -hmm. after I worked, where Lisa, who wanted to tap my talent, brought me uh, as an intern. And I was a terrible intern, but then discovered copyright. I was given one great copywriting assignment that I felt tap my talent. And then Mm -hmm. later had a conversation with somebody I had met there, my friend Adam, who said he was writing TV promos. And I was like, what are TV promos? And he said, well, I watch a lot of TV. And then I write the little those spots during the commercials that are for the network itself or for the shows. And I was like, so you watch a ton of TV and then write little things like funny (laughs) little things. That's a job. I need that job. And I went and got that job. So yeah, it's, uh, it was always up to me to tap my talent. And it was through doing this and that and saying yes to opportunities rather than sleeping through them, um, rather than saying, no, that's not going to tap my talent. No, that's not going to be a dream job. That's not going to be perfect for me. I at least did them. Sometimes I got fired within six months. And or sometimes I kind of flunked at them, but they always led to something that did tap my talent in a certain way. And then in this phase of my business or my career, having a business and writing emails that are the engine of the business, like writing stories in these emails to a list of people who then buy things, that is to me that 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 is the pinnacle of tapping my talent and getting paid to be me. 
How yeah. how lucky that you came of age when these uh, yes. emails was such a <laughs> became a thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like uh, they were not a thing when I was coming of age. It, it depends when what you call coming of age. If you call my right. you know mid to late forties coming of age, yes, they, that's when they <laughs> were a enough. thing. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, you've cornered the market in the email game, in my opinion. <laughs> your your book launch has been really impressive, too. Congratulations on that. You've got kind of this constant feed updates on your socials. You've got lots of emails that are all fun to read and are all kind of reminding us, grab a copy, write a review, which I did. I see hundreds of others did, too. Yeah. Um, congrats on that. That's a big push. I'm always telling people uh, whether they get it published or self-published, it's like the reviews are everything, well, you know? So hard. Uh, such a slow and then you had parties, what seemed like for days, for like yes. <laughs> launch week. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what, what went into that? Like behind the scenes, did your publisher help you at all? Can you shed some light on like what it even <laughs> took to make all this happen? Uh, well, the publisher did set up the Barnes & Noble event, mm -hmm. but I... I had to bring in the conversation partner, who was my friend Marie Forleo. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have even, I don't think, bothered to go to a store. It was like, well, come up with someone you want to be in conversation with who will be impressive enough for the bookstore to say yes, mm -hmm. and we oh, okay. will set it up for you. Otherwise, awesome. it is all on the author. Everybody told me that. So I can't say it's the thing nobody tells you about publishing. Everyone tells you. Mm -hmm. Every author tells you. Uh, I think when I signed my agency agreement to be rep represented by this agency, they said in their letter, their engagement letter to me, selling this book will be on you. Mm -hmm. And so everyone tells you that, and it's absolutely true. It is all on you to arrange everything. I was very lucky to have, for instance, my friend Marisa Corcoran, who was in Shrimp Club and is an absolute superstar. Shrimp Club is my mastermind uh, so a few years ago. Um, she's a wonderful person, a brilliant copywriter. And she said, I want to support you and your book. So I'm giving you a party. So I, I, I'm terrible at part. I don't Fabulous. want to plan parties. Mm -hmm. It's not my thing, not my fort. And so I was very lucky to have someone plan a party for me. And mm -hmm. then I also had someone helping me with my, I had two parties. I had one the night, the eve of pub day. So that was a Monday night party. And that one was on me that I, I footed the bill for it and had a wonderful party planner help me with it um, named Marsha Batty. If anyone wants her name, hit me up. She's fantastic. Where was that? It looked like an amazing venue. It was. It was at the Butterfly Lounge, which is in the 60 Soho Hotel, where my husband, Stephen, used to be a partner in a restaurant called Sasanta. He opened a restaurant there. Oh, nice. So it was kind of in the family. And nice. um, it was the perfect venue and a, and a lot of fun. But I was so stressed about all of it. I was like... Why am I having a party? To what end? Why am I spending so much money? And then I kept having to be reminded, it's a celebration. It's a chance for all your friends to come celebrate you and the book. Because I was like, it's not going to sell books. And like, no, it doesn't sell books. But the... Uh, I think it, it helps, though. I feel <laughs> yeah. like you there's a, um, a momentum that, yes. that was built through all the things happening and other people, you know, 
taking photos and posting about it. And like, right. there's kind of a, um, there's a, yeah, a the buzz. quality of the mm-hmm. buzz that, that is, you can't quantify the, the sales, but I'm, I'm positive right. it's there. Yes. Yes. I think for all of these things, it's more the social proof. It's more the, yes. what you do with the, with the footage. Always have good photographers and videographers. Most important. It, that is, that <laughs> didn't is happen. What, yeah. No, it didn't happen if no one posts about it. And, um, including the Barnes and Noble event, I was mm-hmm. told, well, we don't, every, all authors would tell me your publisher is not going to send you on tour. You will have to pay for anything that you, any travel you do or whatever. They don't believe in it. And sure enough, they said, well, we don't really think live events like in-person events move the needle. People don't really want to leave the house, which I think is a absolute opposite. People do want to leave the house and be, and gather in person. Clearly. But at any rate, what sells books is people seeing the the sizzle reel that yeah. you had put together later and saying, oh, my gosh, this happened. It's a legit book. Everybody's reading it. Everyone had a copy. She was signing copies. So that's what moves the books. Amazing. I love it. Uh, so when I when I first reached out to you, it was actually because you made one of those perfect Laura insider references um, in one of your email footers. Uh, you specifically referenced sticky floors at Deke, which of course <laughs> uh, paints a very specific picture of an experience <laughs> that I have also shared with you because we both went to Wesleyan yes. University. All of a sudden I felt like, you know, kindred spirits and it made me feel like I had to reach out. And then I learned reading your book that like me, you also have only ever lived in New York except for our little stint in Middletown, which That's amazing. I feel like is pretty rare. Um, if you don't mind me take this a little off topic for a moment, do you know a lot of New Yorkers who are in this online entrepreneurial space? Because no, no. I don't know any. <laughs> no, it's pretty rare. Um, why? New Yorkers? I don't know why. I, I think that in a way, I think that New Yorkers might think they're too cool for it. Uh-huh. Or it just doesn't occur to them. I don't, I don't know. And also not a lot of Jews, um, mm-hmm. which I am not a lot of Jews, not a lot of New Yorkers, certainly not. And in New York, you don't meet a lot of born and bred New Yorkers who That's are true. still in New York. It's so rare. Where do you, where do you live? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Stuyvesant Town and I went oh, yeah. to Hunter uh, ah. Elementary and High School. So oh my gosh, I was down Europe. the street from. Uh, you went to Brearley. Right? Yes, I went Brearley. to Brearley. Yep. And the person I mentioned, my friend Adam, who told me what promos were and helped me get a promo job, went to Hunter also oh, many really? years before you. Yeah, because he's older than me and I'm way older than you. So. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you had some amazing references that I was, that was also like tickled by so many of them. Um this is not about me. This is about you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> yes, I can't help it. Um, I made me just giddy. Um, I also took bartending 101 at Columbia University. <gasps> no way. Um, I specifically remember making flashcards about the Harvey Wallbangers. I remember him <laughs> saying like, you'll remember because the wall, like whatever the thing in the wall yes, right. is on the top shelf and you bang the wall when you take it out. Yeah. <laughs> Never. I, I bartended for eight years. I don't think anyone ever <laughs> like mentioned no, that drink. No one ever uh, orders a Harvey uh, Wallbanger. Or, or any of the drinks or- that I memorize slow screw yeah yeah long screw screw. (laughs) (laughs) that is and it's funny because like those are drinks that probably other but no i specifically learned them at the columbia university 101 (laughs) class which i took a senior of high school which we were super happy that they didn't card and (laughs) let us drink um 
I used to go to Lucky Strike all the time because I lived in my friend's uh, rent-controlled apartment uh, down the street in Soho. Oh, that's so cool. Um, uh, we went to uh, Lucky Chang's is where I brought the millennial, the millennium in with all my friends in 2000. We were at oh, Lucky Chang's wow. with we're the chocolate. We're anticipating Y2K to happen. Yes. Yes, yes, we were anticipating that surrounded by drag queens and a huge <laughs> chocolate stiletto heel. Um, so just like these little things, um, frozen hot chocolate at Serendipities uh, was such a specific reference I had forgotten about. I literally stopped and called my friend Sophie up and because she was always the one who was like, whenever we're like, what do we do? She was like, let's go to Serendipity for frozen hot chocolate. <laughs> it's like, uh, we can't do that all the time. So she just had a laugh. We had a little giggle about that too. It was a very New York story. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I was past, I think the studio 54, um, age, but the whole story of just replace it with a different place, you know yes. what I mean? Like I had the same experiences. Yeah. What um, was the club everyone was going to when you were in high school? Um, like we underage. were going, we were going to Sweet and Vicious, which I actually oh. think is still there in it Soho, um, which I can't believe that these places that like, was there also the still... box? Were you in the, the Lindsay box. Lohan age? I like... did not go to the box because I remember yeah. the box being very expensive for some I reason. So. What um, about like, One Oak? No. No, no. That was the Lindsay. That's where like Lindsay, Lindsay Lohan, Lohan, when she was out and raging and, uh, and making trouble, that's where she was accused of stealing somebody's oh. coat. Oh. Oh, yeah. Lindsay. <laughs> oh, Lindsay. Um, we, we, well, they, I think as I was in my late teens to, to like right before 21, the, the carding got stricter and stricter. So like, mm-hmm. I remember like we could go out at like 15 to the ship, yeah. to the, like we could kind of get in, but by like 18 or 19, it was harder. Right, <laughs> and by right. 21, we were glad that we were 21 because you couldn't get yeah. in anywhere. So it was like happening right around then. Um, we were, we were very much into the, uh, yeah, the, the dive bars, but just the experience of like going to these places where you're really young and like you're trying to get in and it's like cool and other people are going there. I just like, it was such a, a New York thing. I don't think a lot of people can can relate to that or maybe they do. It's just in their well, own ways. I think they can relate to wanting to be in the cool crowd, wanting yes. to go where the cool people are going or being or wanting to be older and hang out with the older people. That wasn't my thing. I was in no hurry to look older or anything like that, except for getting into Studio 54 mm-hmm. with my friends. But I like I was kind of in the loser crowd. But I think people can relate to either one or the other. Mm-hmm. And you see, like all those details that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, most people reading the book will have no idea what they are, but they will know what they are. But they get like it. I say right. the place I went, you know, lucky strike my friends and I would go there when like after we went to a club um late at night and have you know spinach with mustard my friend uh-huh. that like steamed spinach with <laughs> mustard while our friend ate fries it, people will understand what the place was yeah absolutely it it felt it just felt very classic and of a time but still universal I think that I think you nailed it on the head um that the more specific the more universal it can be I really yeah. like that Anyway, I had just such a good time reading your book. Um, Thank in, you. In part because it's such a riot, uh, in part because it's so relatable, and because you share relatable stories that I think other people are uncomfortable sharing, which mm-hmm. makes it even more relatable. Yeah. And in part because it just brought up so many memories for me. I felt like it was speaking right to me, uh, which I think is what is so powerful about your writing and your voice. Thank so you. 
So thank you so much for writing this. Thank you so much for coming on this show. And to everyone listening, go grab a copy of Tough Titties. Um, go to talkingshrimp.com backslash book. You can see all the places yeah. available. Or if you are like me and refuse to put your credit card information in, you can just go to Amazon. Basically, where I buy everything. Already, already filled in. Um, uh, yeah. Or you can go to tufftittiesbook.com. Oh, tufftittiesbook. It's just even it, better. Easier. It's a redirect it's to talkingshrimp.com slash book. But toughtittiesbook.com will, yeah, I love take it. you right there. I love it. Any parting words for our um, our listeners? Anything you can uh, recommend? I You have to go out and buy this book. Any any last parting words of advice to, to our listeners? You know, I think my advice is it's pretty rote. You'll hear this from a lot of people, but be you. And I know being yourself is kind of easier said than done. But if you read Tough Titties, you will get us. I think it will motivate you and make free you up to be more of who you are. That's something that I've always looked for in Mm. people, books, anything I surround myself with. And I think that that can come from reading Tough Titties. So Pia, thank you so much for reading it and for having me on and talking about it. This was so much fun. Thanks, Laura. And I'll also say you should go buy Laura's courses and mini courses. What was the one that it was called? 60 second, 60 minute makeovers, oh, 60 minute makeovers. copywriting mini course, full yeah. longest name of anything. But I know I'll, I'll be honest when I first bought it and it was a PDF, I was like, huh, a PDF. And then it was so incredibly valuable. I was like, Oh my gosh, you can, you can do this in a PDF because mm. it's worth its weight in gold. Um, Thank you. It, it will inspire you. All of her stuff will inspire you to, uh, kick up your communication a notch. And I think everybody needs that. Oh, yes. So thank you very much, Laura. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back next week with more no BS tips for your agency so you can find more profit, ease and freedom. The No BS Agency podcast is produced by Yellow House Media. Coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode is edited by Marty Seafelt. Creative direction by Sean and Tara McMullen. Our theme music is Knock 'em Down by The Shrugs. 